BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, this is Josh Marshall, and this is the Josh Marshall Podcast. I'm here with my colleague, David Tainter. Hey there, Josh. Hello. Hey, how you doing? Good, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. I'm, I'm, uh, I was away for a few days. Uh, I, I was in Vermont. Oh, I nice. was picking up my son uh, from camp. This is his second, second year of camp away for four weeks. So yeah, the classic, wow. uh, yeah. classic, you know, kind of northeast camp thing with on a lake and all Sounds that great, canoeing yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So that was fun. I got a, got um, got away for a few days, just take a little kind of mini break. Um, and t- so today we have something, you know, uh, pretty different from our normal fare. Uh, some of you may be uh, familiar with this podcast, and if you're not, I, I really recommend uh, checking it out. It's called the Internet History Podcast, and it's hosted by a guy named Brian McCullough, and that is a podcast that is about, as you'd expect, the history of the Internet. And <laughs> uh, Yeah, and, and goes into just sort of uh, interviews people who are part of that history. And, and I am, I was uh, humbled to be asked to do an interview uh, because TPM is part of the early history of blogging yeah. and all that kind of stuff. It's and, hard to believe you're staring down like the 20th anniversary of the yeah, site before yeah, too long. So. Yeah, it's, it's, we're, we're coming up on it. So that is, uh, that's a real thing. So anyway, um, I did this interview uh, a little while back, and when we agreed to do it, we we sort of arranged that uh, we would we would be able to publish the interview ourselves as 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 part of our podcast. So so the interview you're going to hear also appeared on the Internet History uh, Podcast, and um, I, I'll I'll tell you this: it's a it's a funny thing to say. Oh, I really like that interview I did. <laughs> Sounds kind of sounds kind of funny, but you know, over if over the years you do a lot of interviews, you sort of learn your own shortcomings as an interviewee, and you know how you meander this way or focus on this thing too much and that other thing not enough. And when I listened to this interview, I kind of felt like, wow, this Brian guy is pretty good. He got a he got, yeah. he got a good interview well, was, out of me. I was listening to some excerpts of it before we before we sat down here, and it sounds like he had a pretty good sense of kind of the nitty gritty details from back in the day. Yeah, I guess he's been I guess he's been a a reader for a really long time, even even back into the first few weeks of, oh, wow. of the site, which is really early when like I I didn't have sort of perfect metrics, but even from the beginning, I had. Uh, the way internet traffic data existed 20 years ago is very different from what we have now. There's no Google Analytics. It really was more kind of, you know, counting server pings. There was sort of a, there used to be kind of a odometer kind of thing at the bottom of websites, right? There would sort oh, of yeah, we didn't, rack up I didn't, your I didn't have user that. I, I basically, I had the server logs and you could, um, there were various programs that would, you know, kind of crunch the server logs. And in that case, you're getting, you know, the number of people who requested pages or actually in, in 
practice, it's more kind of the number of pages requested. Mm-hmm. I think in the first few weeks, I, I, there were maybe like 50 readers or something, wow. just, just like a few dozen people, which, yeah. which at the time seemed seemed uh, pretty cool, and it was cool. In any case, um, as you'll see in this interview, his interviewing style is very low key. Like he, you know, I'd kind of answer a question. He's like, "What about da 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 da?" And then he'd kind of, but but you know, interviewing as as I have learned over the years is 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 a deceptively complicated and difficult thing to do because you you don't want to um, as as well. You don't want to step on people's toes. You don't want to kind of, you know, be more you talking than them. Right. But you also want to keep it moving. Yep. Um, and you and I think it is good to have a sense of exchange and stuff yeah. like that. In any case, if you're interested in the history of TPM, this is, I think, the sort of the best discussion I've seen of that. And there's also a lot of stuff in there about um, the history of digital journalism, um, and the the economics of it and the different eras of it, you know, kind of like an early blogging era and then, a, uh, you know, social era and all this kind of stuff. In any case, um, before we get down to that, let me, let me uh, uh, say a few words from our glorious sponsor, Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. If you're roughing it in the wilderness or traveling to some remote location, finding the perfect cup of iced coffee can be a serious challenge. But Grady's Cold Brew is here to help. Grady's reusable all-in-one cold brew kit is ultralight and packs flat, so it's easy to stash in your suitcase or backpack. All you need to do is add water. Tap, bottled, or filtered directly from a mountain stream. No electricity or refrigeration required when you when you brew it this fresh. Each kit makes 36 cups of coffee for only 30 bucks, and shipping is free. Grady's Cold Brew is independently owned and operated in New York City since 2011. Are you ready to give it a swirl? Get 20% off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. TPM. So uh, we're going to get down to the interview. Uh, again, uh, check out the Internet History Podcast by Brian McCullough. He's the host. I've listened to uh, a number of episodes now, and it's really, you know, especially if you're interested in, in the history of the Internet, and um, which is obviously a, a, a fairly uh, recent history. So the people who did it are, are mainly still, still doing it. Yeah. yeah. And you can, you can talk to them. So it's really interesting stuff. Uh, so here it is. And uh, we'll be back at the end with a, with a few short words. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. We've spoken to a lot of blogging pioneers on this show, but Josh Marshall is one of the key people who brought blogging into the realm of serious, award-winning, and respectable journalism. The story of his blog slash publication, Talking Points Memo, or TPM.com, is the story of blogging becoming legit and serious, but also It's the story of modern media as a business over the last 20 years of digital disruption. Please enjoy.
Josh Marshall, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thanks for having me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start this way because I think I knew that you were maybe going to be a history professor or something, but then I've taken so many book recommendations from you, <laughs> and they're mostly not American history, right. so I was kind of surprised to learn that it was kind of American history that you were doing like your dissertation on and things like that. Yeah, uh, American, sort of pre-American history in a way. My my dissertation was on southern New England in the, in the middle 17th century. So my kind of area of specialization is in the colonial period. But yeah, my, my, my PhD is in American history. And the reason this is, so, you know, when you've when you've done a PhD on a topic, it's kind of work. Right. And so so for me, at least, I I almost never read any American history because I kind of it's not like I don't have a ton to learn. And my my knowledge of the literature now is very outdated. But I know something about it. I'm always looking for things that I don't know anything about. So right. I'm always the things that I read and the things that I recommend are usually ancient history, uh, medieval, kind of anything and everything those are besides the, American history. Those are the recommendations I've been taking, but also the, the history of publishing and books recently mm -hmm. that you yes, did. Yes, yes, yes. I've, yeah, absolutely fascinating stuff. So was that the plan uh, to be a professor? Definitely. I, you know, it was even sort of my plan back into high school and mm -hmm. not just be a professor. I wanted to be a history professor. Was, um, was your family academics? My father uh, was a marine botanist. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, yes, I mean, he had a PhD in marine botany. Uh, he kind of left academics for a lot of his midlife, uh, went back to it uh, late in life. Um, so, so a bit, uh, somewhat, but, you know, I didn't grow up on a college campus or something like that. Um, so uh, what went wrong? <laughs> what what uh, delayed? I think you, it, it was the delayed getting the PhD at least, but... Um. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, uh, I went to college, I went, I took a year off basically to apply to graduate school, right into graduate school, everything was kind of swimming along. And in some ways, I think my, my relative success or my sense that I was doing pretty well at the time, a couple of years into graduate school, actually, it, it allowed me to think about it a little more clearly. Um, because as with many things in life, when you're scrounging, you're just looking for the next scrounge, right? You're kind of, and, and when you have a, a moment of either completion or relative success, you can kind of say like, is, what am I doing here? Like what, you know, is this what I want to do? And, and I had one of, I had like a, I had like an anti-epiphany after I finished my prelims, which is usually in a graduate program, kind of a series of tests you take at the end of a couple of years when you're kind of about to start on, on doing a, 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 a dissertation. And I was just, this isn't enough somehow. This isn't, this is too, this is too confining. Um, and for a while I thought, okay, I'll be one of those, uh, you know, kind of professors who also, you know, writes in dissent or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, and and I also had no idea to to how to you know how to transition into doing what I eventually ended up doing. So um, I kind of kicked around for a while, uh, worked on the dissertation. Eventually, sort of started in journalism without the dissertation finished. 
a couple years in, I did finish it. So like on paper, I was in graduate school for like 11 years. Um, but that's basically what happened. And I, I figured that I, I just wanted to, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to, I wanted to be engaged in the contemporary world. Weren't you also designing websites at some point? I was when I was in when I was in okay so when I was in graduate school, um, I started I mean started a web design firm mm. that was like me and my then girlfriend basically, uh, and and there were a lot of those yeah those totally days, yeah. totally totally, um, uh, and and um, we you figure you need to specialize in some way to kind of set yourself apart. So we specialized in designing uh, websites for law firms. So I, in the, in the sort of the middle nineties, I designed a lot of web uh, law firms, first websites. And that actually, um, I even had a little newsletter about internet, uh, internet, but you know, kind of the internet for legal professionals and also some internet law. And that was, that ended up being a pretty big deal because when it came to doing what I ended up doing, I knew how to design websites, which and, was, a, which at the time was a, right. Was a and thing. Where, where did you pick that up? Were you like a, a nerdy computer kid or, uh, not, you know, not really. I, um, some, you know, when I, I remember, I think it was in uh, maybe 92 or 93, you know, the, the university that I was at distributed a, I don't know if it was like, you know, one of those old Mac mini flop, you know, kind of the smaller three and a quarter inch things that had something called mosaic on it. Um, and it was like you, and I think it was the way it was presented to me was like, it was the web. You could download the web, right? And uh, somehow I just got into it. So just got into um, designing, you know, just kind of primitive HTML. And I'm not, I'm not sure exactly why. But it wasn't like you took classes for that sort of thing. No, no, never. It just, just, it was, everything was pretty primitive back then. So sort of ease of, you know, it, it was uh, pretty easy to get started back then. Um, you mentioned the newsletter. Uh, is that how you sort of got into doing journalism stuff? Like, how, how does, how does the move towards journalism sort of happen? Um, well, there was this newsletter and, and to a great extent, it was, that was just, it was, you know, promotional. It was a way to, it was a way to get, get Drama business. business yeah. But I think I was also, for whatever reason, I was, I was desperate to create things, um, and, and to create things on the internet. Uh, and, and why that is exactly, I'm not totally sure, but I was. And the journalism thing Again, when I was a couple years into graduate school, so I guess this would have been like, I don't know, 1994 or something like that, uh, late 94, I was like, I gotta, I have to do this other thing, but I had no idea how to do that other thing. So um, it really, maybe a year later, I started like, just how do I do, I had no idea. So um, it was only really... A couple years later that I was like, all right, I, I got to figure out how to start doing this journalism thing or write, you know, kind of commentary writing. And I eventually, um, and it, it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a tough process for a, a kind of uh, mortifying reason, which is that I, I didn't know where to start. And, and I, on paper, I'm like, hey, I'm almost a PhD. Like, you know, I'm in my late 20s. 
and and but no one who, who cares right for doing something totally different that doesn't matter so i i kind of i i i couldn't you know bring my i didn't want to just take an internship somewhere even though there's every reason why i should have you know your pride gets in the way uh eventually i started pitching things to places i got a few pieces published i um threw on what you know, it, well, actually on internet censorship, uh. because that was something, and I mean, for anybody trying to break into any kind of writing or journalism, find out some angle of things that you know about, even if you're not that interested in it, just because... Or, or something new that you can be the first one. Exactly. Yeah. Something that you've got an angle, because, you know, everybody, for and I did too, everybody wants to... Everybody wants to write about big think, you know, my ideas about the state of America, but no one cares about your ideas about state because they don't know who you are. So you got to start with something where you've got some special angle. Um, so I wrote a few of those pieces and then um, once things got underway, they started moving a little more quickly and I, and I took a, an editing job at a small political magazine called the American Prospect, which was then based in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, which was where I was living at the time. Um, which also should be noted, uh, a lot of the blogger stars that came out of there that now run media <laughs> came, did, did some time at the American Prospect too. Um, so your blog, was there anything before Talking Points Memo? Was there like a personal anything or? Not, you know, there was when I was, uh, at the American Prospect in my sort of like final months at the American Prospect. I started, I don't even remember what it was called, but I started um, sort of like a blog-like thing on the American Prospect website. Mm -hmm. um, and so this would have been in, in, in like, you know, mid-late 2000. And my only recollection of it was that a couple times I wrote in two loose sort of edgy of voice and kind of got brushed back a bit so there was that by who that, by commenters or by your by no your... by like the the powers that be at oh, the magazine yeah, yeah. um and uh so so there was that and i i don't really remember now whether that was a few months or just like a week or two um there was i, I had a personal website that i you know just a url basically that i posted a few things on but no there wasn't like there wasn't like a i guess uh you know i forget these things named there wasn't live journal back then i don't think right, right. but no it wasn't like i had some other thing and then switched it over to to doing uh tpm right because blogger is probably just getting started around this time um and things like that yeah there were there were, i i later found out that a few of these things did exist mm -hmm. but but they were only just starting and i did not know about them uh, are you reading blogs at the time, or or people that we would now call bloggers? Uh, you know, y yes and no. There was a lot of blogging that I knew nothing about, even though it was out there. I do think I read. My recollection is that sometime in maybe late two thousand, there was an article in the New Yorker that may have actually been about uh, the the blogger platform, and it was just about these people and i remember reading that but it wasn't but they weren't writing about politics it was sort of you know kind of cocky it's sort of it is stuff. It, it was jason cocky because oh, okay I've was that what profile it, yeah okay okay so that's what it was yeah. so i remember reading that and i but i and i wasn't but they talked about a couple other people sort yeah. of like a small community of people the real thing for me was and this and this you know things change over time uh mickey Kaus, 
uh, who now has has uh, I don't know what to say about Mickey. His <laughs> his his politics have have um, you know taken him in his own uh, direction. Uh, but Mickey, uh, I think, sometime in maybe ninety nine started uh, nineteen ninety nine started this thing called House Files, and it was like a proto blog. And again, I later found out that there were a number of people doing this blogging thing, but at least, but at the time, that was it. That was this thing, and he was doing it. No one else was doing it. Um, and I knew him vaguely, and uh, whatever uh, Mickey's politics have gone, uh, you know, we're always sort of idiosyncratic and have gone in kind of a, in sort of an odd direction. But whatever his politics, Mickey is a... Uh, a deeply kind mentoring kind of person. Uh, and, and I really liked, I just liked what he was doing. I, I don't mean so much what he was writing, although I found a lot of it interesting, but just the voice. And, the, and I really was like, ah, oh, you know, they, I, that, you know, resonated for me. And then, um, a few months before, I started TPM, Andrew Sullivan started his site, which I think was very much based on Mickey's site, Mickey Kaus's site. And that was the Daily Dish, which which um, existed until a few years ago. And I guess, I don't know, it has some sort of on and off existence, may, maybe now. In any case, those two guys w- were doing this kind of very first person commenting on politics that was operating outside of the, you know, small magazine reporting and commentary uh, genres that I was familiar with, and I and I just was into that. And I think when I started TPM, it was it was I wanted to do that thing they were doing. And and again, at the time, I didn't really know about anybody else doing the same thing. Even though I I later learned that yes, there were a bunch of people doing kind of similar stuff. Why did you want to add your voice to that sort of thing? Why did you want to do what Sullivan and th- these guys are doing? Or, or why did you have the chutzpah to even be like, I want to pitch in too? Uh, I think I wanted to do it because I I saw a freedom in the kind of writing uh, that that just appealed to my personality um and i was young and thought i had a lot of things to say and i was trying to uh you know by that time i had been i had been working in a journalism job for by the time i started tpm like almost three years so i mean i i sort of was like you know legit as it were um in the in 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 journalism but like a lot of people i wasn't um you know, I didn't feel everybody had quite recognized my genius yet, right? <laughs> um, and I and I and I didn't feel I could sort of. I think oftentimes, as a journalist or or as a writer, one kind of feels if I could if I could write it just how I want to write it, I would really be like you know, kind of connecting with that fastball right over the right over right over the plate, uh, and it just. I felt that I would have the freedom to write exactly in the way that I would want to write. And that appealed to me. And like uh, a lot of young people, I uh, I had the chutzpah and, 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 you know, thought it made sense. Is the immediacy also appealing? Like, 
something happens. I'm in the shower. I have a take. Sit down at my computer. Pound out the take. Boom. I think I think hugely, and and um, you know I've thought a lot about over the years. There's I have these weird analogies I think, and but um, you know one of the big things in in the Civil War with like generals like Grant and Sherman is they have this kind of revolution in mobility warfare where you're you are. <laughs> it's very complicated, but but speed and mobility becomes a big big thing. And when you can, when you can react to political events, and again, I write about mainly about politics, when you can react to political events and be dipping in uh, between what were then very defined news cycles, right? Newspapers come out once a day. That was, you know, felt kind of transformative. Um, so yeah, the immediacy had a lot to... Um, a lot of appeal, and I think that there were certain there were dimensions of it that I couldn't really appreciate until I started doing it. And a huge amount of that was the nature of the feedback, because you can. Um, I, I I seldom write for any other publications anymore, but um, the first few years I was writing TPM, I I still did a lot of freelance writing, and I've written for some very big publications. And you can write, you know, you can write a, an article for. The New Yorker or The Atlantic, and at least at that time, you know, maybe you'll you'll get letters from like three people, right? <laughs> Even though in theory there's all these people reading, and with doing this this blogging thing or internet <clears throat> thing, you're getting lots of responses quickly, and and you're getting um, you're getting information that that comes from them, and it, it's just. I did it, and I quickly, I was just hooked very quickly, even even though it took me a while to kind of figure out why I was doing it. But I wanted to do it. Keep keep that immediacy and the news cycle thing top of mind, but let, let, me, let me get into the chronology. So Talking Points Memo launches November of 2000. Correct. Right? And so guess what happens that month is the 2000 election. Right. Um, this is... I'm probably going to do it again, but just a personal aside, I remember watching Al Gore concede on CNN and refreshing TPM. Okay. At the same time. So okay, so th- okay, so this is this. What well, you, you mean when he f- di- finally conceded, like like in December or whatever? Yes. Okay, yeah, yes. yep, yep. So yep, yep. I must have discovered you very very early. <laughs> you know, I think I think anybody who did something early in the in early in the you know, kind of journalism, internet's history, you have a lot of people saying, oh, you know, I, for the first week or the first month, and you're sort of like, if everybody said that, I would have been jamming in a weekend and I only had 50 people reading the site. But you're, but you're talking about like five weeks into the history of the site. And also, I, I want to, I was hoping you were going to mention, didn't like Kaus or somebody put you on their blog roll or something and that was a big, like, I'm, how would I have discovered you? Someone would have linked to you and things like that. I, th- I think, uh, this is sort of one of the things that's hard to, for people who weren't kind of doing this back then, like now there's like Twitter, there's all these sort of ecosystems of things. So it's, it's pervasive and you could find out something anywhere. You mm-hmm. tweeted it, you know, your uncle put it on Facebook, but all of these sort of like platform ecosystems didn't exist. So if you're just starting doing it, you could, you know, you could write for years and no one would ever visit yeah. your site. I'm pretty sure um, 
it would have been a link from Mickey that probably introduced me. And the one thing is at the time I had, by this time I had moved down to Washington. Um, and so I was in this little community of people who write for places like the American Prospect and Salon and the New Republic. So I had a kind of a, a small community of, of fellow journalists who I was, maybe I emailed it to or something like that. And one of my big advantages was that journalists are by definition influencers they write stuff you know so i kind of had a i had some some early advantage in just knowing a a a small group of people who had the ability to amplify what i was doing and like get me the initial footing of like a hundred readers or something like that i well i just wanted to bring that up because i have said before uh people underestimate the power that blog rolls had for the early blogosphere. Big time, big time. I, it, podcasting needs some form of blog rolls and things like it's that. Tr- yeah, it's true. It's true. It's true. Um, but then um, the reason I wanted you to keep the immediacy and the news cycle in mind was, like, when I've spoken to, you know, founders of Slate and places like that, and they talked about, like, <clears throat> you know, we thought it was going to be a thing you would print up once a week or something, like... And then several people have said it was the Princess Diana event that made them realize that the news cycle had to be 24-7. Other people have said it's 9-11. But to me, like you're you're right in the era of the Bush versus Gore thing. Yeah, yeah. And then 18 months later is 9-11. Like this is the period where modern media is born in that sense. But it's a long 18 months. Like yeah. I have a lot of recollection of things that were – because that's when I, you know, kind of – started this basically um like it seems now like okay just a kind of a quick period but a lot you're right that a lot happened in internet terms and sort of internet publishing and um blogs and 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 one of the you know one of the big things that again a little hard to kind of think back to now is that a lot of these blogs started in a framework where you know the people at Slate may have realized that about with, you know, uh, Diana's death. But you were still largely in a in a context where the big media organizations, you know, mainly the newspapers, were kind of on a once a day cycle. You come out with things once a day. It's a breaking news. Maybe the Times comes out some in the middle of the day. And the advantage that these upstarts have is that you're jumping in and out kind of like, oh, I'm, I'm working this through the day before you kind of, you know, get another crack at it. Oh, uh, entirely, because why am I refreshing your site? Because I was so hungry for what's really going on. Like, is, what is this lawyer saying? What is this person saying? Like, and so people like you were filling that need for me. Right. Where the cycle wasn't there yet that I needed. Right. And now you can get that in a lot of, you know, in, in a sense, Twitter does it for a lot of people just as a platform. There's a lot. I mean, obviously, most of the big news organizations, the Times, the Posts and stuff like that. I don't even I mean, I'm so divorced now from the from the print editions. But basically, they're just dropping stories when they're when they're ready. So in a, in, a, in a sense, and this is something that we have had to creatively respond to over the years, is that the big the big journalism outfits have come over to us in terms of time sequence. Um, so that's that's very different than it was almost 20 years ago. This is probably a, a dumb tangent, but do you ever think about the the sense that 
like you know th- we're in such a crazy news cycle time now that what ha- what what was the big story at 9:30 no one will even remember by 2:30 in a sort of medium is the message sort of thing like is the crazy news cycle we have now created by the twitters and the blogs or was that a reaction to the news cycle getting more crazy you know what i mean yeah it's a really it's a really good question i i was i was thinking when you when you were asking that i was thinking about you know could trump i mean there's a lot of reasons we think about how we have trump and stuff like that but in the sense of the barking on twitter the little kind of press availability where he says something crazy and stuff like that that a lot of his a lot of his sort of evil genius of of continuing to insert himself in in press cycles often with totally crazy stuff but he's pr- ever present most of that would not have been possible in in the media ecosystem that existed 20 years ago because it just there wasn't it wasn't a place to keep showing up. Well, also, I think, you know, I'm old enough to remember, like, the first 10 years of headline news was literally, they would run a news thing for a half hour, and then bottom of the hour, they would rerun the same news thing, and that might happen, that same 30 minutes for half the day. Yeah, yeah, So, yeah, totally. was it just that there was not as much news back then, or now, because we need to fill something new every 10 minutes, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's 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 a really good question, and it's it's... You know, impossible okay. to answer impromptu. Let's get, but out of, I, let's get out of the call to second. Okay. That's <laughs> like a let's get high in the dorm room sort of thing. Um, all right. But I, 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 I would yeah. say this, though. A lot of what it is is the news cycle used to be a, a an, an occasional or a, you know, daily recitation of a new set of canonical facts. And now the news cycle is basically ongoing discussion. And that, to me, is the and, – and ongoing discussion always existed with your pal, right? Um, but you had a media environment that allowed it to become pervasive and aware of itself. And for people who – you know, academics and, and uh, people who study media, one of the big things about the origins of modern media, about newspapers – is people become aware of themselves as a consuming public, mm. and so that to me is the big is is the big thing that that the the discussion of of the canonical facts becomes the majority of what we think of as the news, and it and it and that is you know that ends up being transformative. And blogs were like a a tiny little part of that, I think. So, for how long is it just? You, you're just a one-man band blog, and it's and and the two-part sort of. How long is it just you, and how long does it take before you're like, oh, as opposed to this just being a calling card for me as a writer, this is actually a thing. Well, it was it was just me basically for um, in in until early 2005, so like mm-hmm. a good or even even mid 2005. So basically. Um, 2001, two, three, four, five, and, you know, four and a half years, um, I had some people, uh, you know, kind of virtual interns, uh, a couple around, uh, you know, in, in that period. But basically, for that period, it was it was just me until the middle of 2005. So, so end of 2000, the middle of 2005. Um, and 
it's the calling card thing is a this was a real issue for me because i i thought i wanted to be a magazine journalist write the long magazine pieces that was kind of that was my plan and i started doing this thing and i quickly figured out that i liked it i was like driven to do it um what i didn't have was a particularly good rationale for why I was doing it. Um, I left the American Prospect uh, two or three months after I started TPM. Like technically, I quit, but basically, I got fired. Um, and but at the time, I was like, I'm doing a lot of freelance. I can I can make this work. And then like the dot com bubble collapsed, and suddenly I'm like making zero money and literally having a hard time buying food. Um, so I'm sort of like, but, uh, but I'm spending half my time doing this thing that, that I get no money from. Um, and I'm also writing in this kind of very, uh, in this voice that is sort of like, is this making, is this getting me towards being that magazine journalist? Mm. <laughs> or is it like, or am I blackballing myself? Um, so I think in, in, in the early months or the first year or so that I was working on it, I was in this situation where I was driven to do it, but I had a hard time coming up with a ration, a professional rationale for why I was doing it. Um, but because, you know, I wasn't making any money from it. And again, I desperately needed money. Um, eventually I realized that this was making a name for me. Um, for whatever for whatever reason and and I and I sort of justified it to myself as kind of a loss leader for my freelance journalism career um but there was definitely in those in those uh in those first few years I had a sense I'm sure a lot of other people who were involved in the space had a sense of sort of like you know kind of this is new and this is history right and 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 it, it's hard to describe that it was kind of intoxicating to have this, um, this, this just one person site that had like a significant audience. Right. And, and, and so I just kept with it because I felt that I was one person, one of, you know, one of many people who are kind of on this wave of something new. And I just was committed to it. Right. Cause in the, in these years is, you know, the whole Dean candidacy that, the blogs got credit for the grassroots mm -hmm. networks sort of thing. Um, and also like, I think it's like 2002 or something that like that whole Trent Lott story yes. that you were involved in happened. Yes. So like, yes. is, is that also sort of like a epiphany moment where it's like, I'm doing things that are affecting actual world events. And yeah, that was one of the first things that got a lot of attention. Uh, there had been a number of smaller things like that. Um, but yes, there, there were a number of these things where I was like, I got on this point, I reported on this, I, I pushed this issue and they may not know it. They may not been admitting to it, but I'm driving the coverage of these big news organizations. And at some level that's, that's like kind of a fun ego thing, but you get into political journalism because you want to you want to try to you know uh, drive the conversation and you you get into it because you think that things that 
are, should be focused on or not focused on. So that's kind of why why you get into it. Um, the you know the funny thing is that um, that was at the end of two thousand two, and at at the, at that point I was in two thousand two I was thirty three, and at that point I still have this dissertation hanging out there. And I've been, you know, I'm technically still enrolled in graduate school, even though I'm in my early 30s, I'm living in a different city, I'm, I've, I've sort of started out in this new profession. And I got to a point where I was, I kind of knew if I didn't finish it mm. soon, the sort of the logic of time was going to turn against me and it was never going to happen. And that was very important to me personally. My dad was not in great health. Um, I knew it was important to him. So I basically set aside that year, like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to finish this thing. And then the Trent Lott thing happens and there's a lot of, you know, that it, it drives a lot of like, you know, kind of media about TPM and stuff like TPM did this story, blah, 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 blah. So I ended up not getting anything done the first semester <laughs> of the year, but I ended up, I did finish it, uh, the, you know, that, that year, but, um, but yeah, that was, there were a number of these stories over time that got more and more attention and also, you know, drove the audience to the site, built the audience to the site in kind of a series of like plateaus. Uh, a couple of things there. First of all, um, that was a tip to you from like readers, right? Sort of, sort of. It's, 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 it's an interesting case because, so this is a speech that, that Trent Lott gave uh, Strom Thurmond was still alive. It was like his hundredth birthday or something like that. Trent Locke gives a speech and basically says, "Ah, oh, if you would have been elected back in 1948, we would have avoided all these problems." Blah 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 blah. And of course, Trent Lott is is ran on an explicitly segregationist platform, uh, Dixiecrat candidate in 1948. Yeah. Oh wait, wait, wait. You said Lott did. Oh yeah, yeah, right. So Strom Thurmond. So. It was one of these kind of seemingly offhand comments that if you knew the history, it was really like bizarre. So there were, at the time, there was this thing from ABC called The Note. And The Note, and, and possibly I'm misremembering some small detail, but this is the gist of it. The Note picked it up as like an overnight thing. I think it was ABC Radio, like picked up the speech or something. So there was like a little mention of it in the note. Ah, oh, Strom, you know, uh, Trent Lott gave this speech and said X, but didn't really draw the, kind of draw any conclusions from it. And then a reader flagged that to me. Mm. And then that was, it kind of went from there. But it's sort of a good example of, of how, you know, an, the uh, the most mainstream media kind of news organization was actually there to see that it happened so and and a lot of blogging is like that and a, a lot of the oh the blogs versus the msm it's much more mutually dependent than that and that's sort of a good example because uh if if whoever from abc radio hadn't been then i never would have heard about it or the reader never would have heard about it so it's all very well, it's you funny know, because it's complex ecosystem. All of those profiles of things like TPM at the time, like especially if you reread them now with twenty years, the the tone is so obviously, oh, anybody can do this, or a nobody can do this. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, and yeah, so, yeah. like that's so we're so through the looking glass with that, where like anybody can drive the conversation, or like you know something can bubble up from anywhere. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But like that is so much of. I mean, I'm sure 
this is what you live through is the idea of, of like, no, we're all in the same business here. And we're on the same level as the New York Times or whatever. Like, it, was that something that even you personally had to, or, or did you did you feel like that 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 had to be true anyway? You know, it's funny. I had a I had a a sort of a a distinct experience of it because um, I, I was already in the journalism profession, um, so I I and that meant I had certain. Um, you know, I had a certain credentialedness vis-a-vis, you know, with other journalists, which obviously gave me some advantages. Um, you know, I wasn't some unknown person with with no connections to anybody who just sort of, you know, kind of took off. So I had a lot of uh, advantages in 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 that sense. And so to answer your question, kind of, I already thought I was one of them because I was one of them, right? I didn't have, I didn't have the status. I was at a small publication, but I was already trying to do the same thing. But there definitely was this sense of sort of like, again, I was this, you know, relatively young journalist who was trying to make a name for himself uh, at a small publication, you know, and there's all sorts of everywhere in journalism. There's all sorts of status anxiety. You know, I'm sitting here, you know, kind of busting my hump at the American Prospect and you're at the New York Times and you're at the White House and stuff like that. So there definitely was that kind of, you know, back and forth and, um, you know, uh, wanting to shake things up and, mm-hmm. and, and not being bound by all of the conventions and, and – uh, status and waiting your turn and and all that kind of stuff so when does it become a business when does it become no this is for real a publication well in in after the 2004 election which was obviously the whole uh, you know a lot built to that politically and and in political journalism obviously it was very disappointing for a, a, a lot of people um myself included um and and after after the 2004 election i i had this idea i wanted to write a book and not a political book i wanted there was a book about history i wanted to write and actually you know uh even got an agent and started trying to do some initial research and stuff like that and my idea was i i wasn't going to close tpm but i was going to you know kind of ramp it back and work on this book project and when i was thinking about it i decided that okay through luck, basically, I was kind of in the right place at the right time. And I've built this thing that is like, has a real audience, it kind of really holds some territory in the internet political journalism thing. And probably right now, I can, with no money or little money, I can build something that's like real. And I'm not gonna be able to do that in two years, certainly not in five years. And so I had this very clear sense that there was a window of opportunity where I could sort of like leverage what I had been lucky enough to kind of happen into, into something real. So, and, and again, it was very much sort of like, I, I have this window of a year, a year or so now, not going to have it in five years. Presumably I can write a book in five years. I mean, you know, it's 15 years ago, so I haven't, (laughs) haven't written any books yet. But, um, so anyway, I, I set the book project aside. Um, and, and really tried to kind of make a go of it. And, um, so in the middle of 2005, and there was also kind of, as all this was happening, 
a bunch of new political stories that I was involved in were getting traction. And that was in, so in 2005, um, I incorporated it as a business. Um, I hired, we launched a thing called TPM Cafe, which was a, a, you know, a place for sort of other people to write stuff at, at, at TPM. Uh, hired a first employee uh, in, in the beginning of 2006, very late 2005, early 2006. We launched another site called TPM Muckraker, opened an office about 10 blocks from here. Uh, in in what remains of the Flower District in New York, hired a couple more people. Uh, so that was when TPM 2005-2006 is when it became an entity beyond just me. And you specifically monetize it, I think, with, with blog ads at first? or I mean, because this, <clears throat> I mean, this is the era where you can throw up AdSense and all of a sudden, if you've got enough traffic, be making tens of thousands of dollars a month. Right. It, it, uh, it was blog ads, and and I think, you know, Henry Copeland will know the details on this, but I think... Federated I, media was around at that point. I don't think they were the... Okay. No, because I started with, with them in, in 2003. So basically, um, and, and, it, and it, it's, it's funny because, again, making zero money from this thing, like I'm putting up like, you know, kind of... Uh, book referral things and in the old days they had a kind of an Amazon tipping thing Mm -hmm. or something so like literally sometimes I have enough to like go buy some food at the market or something like that but I'm not making any money from making my money from freelance journalism and then I think in 2003 there's this guy and things are happening so quickly at this point I'm getting and a, a lot of I'm sure other people who are doing the you know kind of in the similar space we're getting the same kind of stuff you're getting pitches from business people you're getting like famous movie stars like writing in like, oh man, this is awesome. Love what you're doing. And it's just kind of becomes normal at a certain point, even though it's not, you know, it's not normal. And there's this guy, Henry Copeland, who has this like ad idea, this thing called blog ads. And I, if I remember correctly, I just didn't respond for like a few months because it's hard to describe how kind of busy and fast and how how much things were changing so quickly in any case i finally responded he's got this idea i agree to try it i think certain i I think i'm definitely one of the first sort of people in the political blogosphere maybe anywhere who tried the site and like it just takes off and quickly i'm I'm making money and and within i don't i can't remember exactly but within six months or something i'm making a real income from the site um which i hadn't made in years because again i'm just trying to put this together with freelance journalism so so that is um so by the time i started this that had already been kind of a thing for maybe upwards of a couple years uh and and yeah so it was all with blog ads it was only um like all of our revenue was 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 blog ads then and it was only kind of a little later that i started sensing that uh, th- that was limiting the site's ability to sort of really monetize because you because obviously as we, as we know now the sort of the the standard um, you know the box ad the banner ad that's where it was obvious to me that's where things were going so a little later kind of got into that kind of stuff but yeah it was blog ads 
um, for the first couple of years of making money from the site. And also sort of like reader fund drives and things like that. And- yeah, there, were, there was uh, – basically, I, I, I bootstrapped it. Um, the the early growth from saying, hey, I want to start this new site. And these were later kind of made into sections of one site. But, you know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. Y- you give money. And I think, you know, I need money to run it for a year. And after that, I think it can make it self-sustaining. Did one of those for TPM Cafe. Did one of those for TPM Muckraker. Um, so, yeah, that was, it was, it was, basically bootstrapped by these these uh you know contribution drives from readers and what about the impulse to you know you could have just continued to be this is a commentary blog this is sort of thing but the impulse to no we're going to do serious reporting i'm going to hire serious reporters we're going to break stories Mm -hmm. um where did that impulse come from you know, I was because, and, yeah. and the reason I ask is because, okay, you're making money. That's the easy money, right? The so it's not an easy decision to like. Well, I'm going to add serious costs here because I'm going to hire <laughs> real professionals. <laughs> there was a lot. There was a lot about the origins of the of of the company that that um, didn't have. I think I pretty quickly got pretty good at making things work as a business. Um, and that was something that I think I was very hungry to do. But there was a lot of things about what I was creating that did not make a lot of sense if you were trying to make money or trying to kind of build a big business because reporting is the most cost-intensive thing, you know, uh, there is. I think I, I was just, I think I was a lot more, because again, I was coming out of journalism and I was coming out of, being a, a reporter, so so I was I was always a lot more reporting focused than a lot of other people doing the same stuff who are more focused on commentary. Now I did a lot of commentary too, but reporting was 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 always a big interest of mine. So when I was doing new stuff, I was just um, I was just very attracted by the idea of magnifying that. Like, I'll get more people to do more reporting and we're going to be breaking more news and stuff like that. So um, that was that was just what I was into. It didn't it didn't you know, very little about political journalism makes sense as a as a money making thing. Not to say you can't make money, but there are better ways to make more money Mm -hmm. than 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 being in than doing uh, uh, political journalism. Um. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it a sort of left field uh, from there, actually, because one of the things that I feel like you have written really insightfully about more than a lot of people is the whole evolution of being able to make money at a site like this, mm-hmm. being independent. Right. And I'm talking about even through... We bring it up to the present here, going through the era of platforms coming, the era of social coming... Um, I'm not going to ask you to like regurgitate some of these, but was there in your mind like this arc where was there a golden era where, man, this is this is something that you can do. You can be an indie site. You can run your own show. You can make a decent amount of money doing it. And has that ebbed? Like what was what was the golden era for? And I know that this is not this. The golden era is still going on for TPM, Mm -hmm. but I'm saying for that ad supported version of it. Right, right, right. 
I would say for us and, and in some ways for the for the whole industry, the, the sort of the golden age was like 2010 to 2015 maybe, mm. um, or maybe 2009 to 14, that kind of, uh, you know, maybe – yeah, some, something something like that period. Um, that the the advertising the advertising industry had fully gotten into the idea that you had to advertise digitally. That was where the big stuff was. That print was, you know, maybe continuing, but a, a legacy thing. There was a lot of money thrown at it. There was a lot of opportunity, I mean, <laughs> relatively speaking, for independent sites because a lot of them were the new, new thing, right? And advertising is always all about the new, new thing. And, but it was before the, uh, it was before the increasing commodification and platformization, for lack of a better word, of the advertising industry really started to to bite which was um you know 2014 15 16 uh and so that was you know you kind of for an independent site that that was sort of the best of both worlds for advertising um and we made a ton of money from ever well you know <laughs> everything is relative we supported the site um and were able to grow on the basis of 95% of the revenue coming from paid advertising. And I, I will say this, though, that one of the things, there is a lot, there is a lot that is very hard about being a small publication, being an independent publication. Um, I made the decision pretty early on, uh, you know, we did a sort of a friends and family kind of round of investment that was like, you know, literally friends and family, 2009, 2010. But I made a decision pretty early on and pretty definitive that I didn't want to do what was on offing then, which was to get a lot of venture capital money, because it was very clear to me that I would not, I would no longer be in control of the whole thing. And that obviously put huge, you know, very big constraints on our, on our, on our growth. But one of the advantages of being small is that you are you are affected very quickly by the trends affecting the industry. And if you survive, it's because you watch those trends very closely. And again, disadvantage becoming an advantage is you are not able to fool yourself into thinking that you are big enough that you're going to buck those trends or those trends aren't going to apply to you. So one of our advantages is that there were things that we were able to see and see the implications of, I think, before a lot of other publications. And again, you see because, you know, you're this little bitty boat and you're getting knocked around by the by the all the waves. And if you're if you're a uh, you know, a big battleship or a big cargo freighter, if you if you've got the 5 million dollars in the bank, yeah. then you you've got the ease and luxury of being like, well, maybe that's not it. But if if you have to have the money to make payroll next month, yeah. It focuses your attention yeah. a lot. 
take this in the spirit that it's intended, but how much of it was, okay, there was this period where, like you said, um, big advertisers are like, all right, we've got to be on the internet. So a lot of dumb money is thrown. But then essentially what happened is it all got scientific and so it couldn't have lasted versus how much is the platforms came in and grabbed it all greedily for themselves. Well, I would say this. For I I try never to and I just don't think in these terms of greed or taking it for themselves because everybody's trying to take everything for mm-hmm. themselves. Mm-hmm. I don't see it in 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 moral terms. I see it in structural terms. I would say there was absolutely a lot of dumb money and I'll tell you there was a there was a car advertiser a car advertiser that everybody will know the advertiser and in like 2009 2010 2011 we're making we're bringing in like tens of thousands a month from from uh, this advertiser for display ads and not just us everybody was but we're kind of on that on that uh, you know that meal wagon or, or whatever um, and I don't mean profits but I mean this is how we fund the company but yeah, like revenue. real money yeah. and it was clear to me at the time sort of like man I know the network you can buy those ads from and and you're paying us X I know the network because we also work with that network that you can pay one tenth X so you're just like you know, you're blowing money right now. And I remember this being kind of, and I remember telling our, you know, kind of colleagues here at TPM at the time, like, they're going to figure this out <laughs> because they are spending, you know, maybe literally 10 times what they could get it for. And so we need to grab all this money as long as we can until they figure out and, and get more economical. So that is an example of, of a, a lot of, you know, dumb money being spent absolutely the thing with the platforms is you know we there's this thing called uh double click for publishers which is google's main ad serving software that is in a few different permutations is a dominant player throughout the entire internet it started off as google ad manager before uh, Google acquired DoubleClick, I think back in, and we, we were like one of the beta users of, of what was called GAM, Google mm-hmm. Ad Manager. So we've been, we've been in this ecosystem literally from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, Google, we, we've, you know, we've gotten, we, we've probably brought in millions of dollars over the years. I mean, <laughs> significant amount, you know, 15 mm-hmm. years um, through Google advertising. So, Yes, there, there, there was a smartening up and efficiencies issue, but there were also basically the platforms for a number of reasons just developed monopoly control. Um, and that meant that they were, in addition to making things more efficient, I mean, the, the, the big story in, in what's happened to digital advertising in the last 10 years is that a few platforms, largely Google, have made it much more efficient. They have driven down prices. And in the course of that, they have taken up a bigger and bigger percentage of the driven down prices for themselves. Uh, And that, again, I don't see it in moral terms. Mm -hmm. It's just they built a monopoly growing out of search. There's, There's all sorts of reasons. It's not a... 
it's not good or bad. It's how things evolved. And and so to me, the question is, are there, uh, you know, we have we have laws that deal with monopolies, uh, and those sometimes need to be updated because the economy works differently. So it's a it's a it's a policy question. It's not a it's not a moral question in my mind. Well, that's that's my other podcast, by the way. But um, the, how about the other side of it, where again you've been through the so many eras of you know there was a time when it was all about writing your headlines for SEO, and if you get the right article, it could be a million searches a month. Yep. You know, page views, and then there's you know obviously then you know. Twitter driving you traffic, Facebook driving you traffic, things like that. My sense has always been, and I think you've explicitly said that, is that your strategy was always like, we, we're a destination for people. We're not chasing whatever this fire hose of traffic is. We just want to be a site that people hit on their favorites every day. Yeah, I, I would absolutely. I think some of that is you sort of find out the reality and then you decide to like the reality, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and we had a we have always had a very dedicated core audience. Um a lot of the sort of genius methods that Jonah Peretti was using for uh Huffington and then BuzzFeed, uh we didn't know as much as Jonah did. We didn't have the resources to get like, you know, kind of data wizards to do SEO. So we had this very committed audience and that meant we didn't have to do a lot of that distribution stuff. We also didn't have the resources to do a lot of that distribution stuff. So we, some of it, yes, was that we we're so smart that we knew blah, 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 blah. But a lot of it was just necessity and where we found ourselves and focusing on what we could, you know, we could uh, do well. And the upshot of that is that we were never, nearly as dependent on search traffic or social traffic as almost all of our competitors. And that obviously, um, you know, that hurt us in the search era and in the social, you know, the social media era. Um, it helped us a lot when everybody else was getting, you know, crushed by declines in, in, in Facebook referrals and stuff like that. And those affected us, but you know, 5% of your traffic. Yeah. 10%, something like that. <clears throat> so I am a, a TPM Prime member. Um, awesome. The, in good standing. Um, so is this, is this, in your mind, at least, let's stipulate for your site at, you know, is this the era of essentially primarily uh, membership subscription supported media? I think, I think it is at least the era where most publications need some substantial amount of their revenue coming from their readers. And the most obvious way to do that is is memberships. There are some permutations of it. There's, you know, Wirecutter, mm -hmm. where they've got this whole thing. Now, affiliate referral is a little different, but that's... And it, that can also turn off uh, yeah, overnight. Exactly. And they have... <laughs> Even more severely than anything else. It, yeah. it, exactly. But there are other things, like there are sites that sell things, you know, sell things to their readers who have uh, events and stuff like that. I think I think the key thing is, are you selling things, whether the thing is a subscription or books or tickets to events, are you selling, are you getting a substantial amount of your revenue by selling things to a defined audience? Mm -hmm. And I think 
most publications in the era that we are in do now or will need a substantial amount of the revenue to come from that. And there's a lot of things that kind of come out of that realization. One is that you need an audience. You need an audience that is not just a distribution platform. You need something that is more than just like we really successfully push our pieces on Facebook and people visit our site. You need a relationship with some group of people. And if you can have a relationship, that can provide a lot of stability, you know, financial stability. Because, you know, what I tell people here at TPM is we have zero ability to affect the evolution of the ad industry. We have, you know, all these things go on that are totally outside of our control. But we should be pretty well situated to create a good TPM because we we do it, right? We have a lot of experience doing it. Now, that doesn't mean we'll succeed, but if we don't, we we have the tools. We should have the tools to do it. And so there's something very powerful and positive and I think morale good for an organization to say we are operating this business in a way where there should be some real connection between our exertion, dedication, smarts, and our potential success. Obviously, nothing is guaranteed. Everything changes. We all die, blah, 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 blah. But in the ad world, man, you could be killing it and go out of business because the advertising industry has nothing to do with you. And your advertisers, frankly, as as we would, we don't want our advertisers to kind of really, you know, to really like us, right? You want it to be a distant, uh, kind of a, a, an arm's length relationship. But none of our advertisers have any, they don't care whether TPM still exists. They want to sell their stuff. And that's that's what it is. That's, that's nothing wrong with that. That's what advertising is. Um, so there's something, there is something that can be very positive about a a kind of a a a big amount of revenue coming from people who have an interest in you still existing um so yeah i th- i think we are in that we're in that era i would also say that that we have for a long time been it's a complex journalistic e- ecosystem there are different niches where different things can work there are still niches where a particular publication has some real hold on a particular audience that advertisers need to, you know, need to talk to. And that's a great business. And that's going to stay a great business. Um, But yeah, memberships. And again, I would see it more broadly as selling things to a defined audience is that's a that's a big thing now. Two more things, and then I'm going to let you go. Um, And this is, again, me interjecting personal stuff here. But Back in the era of, like, the the Iraq War stuff, like, that's when, you know, I feel like I made the decision to... I remember living here in New York at the time and the marches that would happen. Mm -hmm. There's 100,000 people in the street, and it's not on the news, and it's not in the newspapers. And so I made the conscious decision to be like, well, these are people that I can trust to tell me what's really happening. Guys like you, Ezra Klein, Iglesias, Mm -hmm. people like that. And I still think I was right to do that, that I wasn't being served by being told the truth. Now, you know, again, this is a topic for my other podcast, but 
we live in this era of people are like, I don't trust, I only trust these people to tell me the truth. Right. And they can be people that are conspiracy theorists and things like that. Right, right, right. So I'm wondering how you think about that either in the context of the 20 years that you've been doing that, where now we're all what Brian was in 2004, which is I don't trust the newspapers anymore. I don't trust the TV. I'm going to select who I trust because now I feel like everybody's doing that and it's fucking chaos. Yeah, I I, I think we, we... It's complicated because it does cut both ways and um, you can definitely self-select for people who are just going to tell you things that make you feel good. Um, and we all have that tendency. Um, I guess, I I guess I look at it from two different perspectives. One is how do we sort of as a society, how do we make sure that, that we are sort of staying in touch with reality? And then there's how us individually, how, how do we do that? And then for some of us, there's the question of as publishers, what is, what are our responsibilities as publishers? I think I have always seen what we do at TPM in the context of a news ecosystem that is, that is, because of the internet, fairly diverse. And here I mean diverse, not in the sense of, of, of gender, racial, ethnic diversity. I mean diverse in the sense of just there's a lot of different news organizations. So, and that means that it's, I think it is fine for us to, to be, um, you know, a certain kind of news organization. We focus on a certain kind of stories. Um, it, we, we focus on stories that have a, that change a lot on a day-to-day basis because that's those are the muscles that we've developed to do. Like, here's an example. Uh, we have tended not to focus a lot on environment or climate because those are big issues that there has not been, at least until relatively recently, not been a lot going on legislatively. So kind of it doesn't, it's not a matter of that we don't think it's important. It's that that we have a small kind of core of news people that are about a certain kind of stories that develop, you know, through the course of days or weeks or something like that. Um, On the big questions, Everybody needs to listen, to, you know, to be to expose themselves to a variety of 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 news organizations, not just ideologically, but in terms of kind of styles of coverage and 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 stuff like that. I I tend to think that there are a lot of people who want to deceive themselves and who want to believe malevolent things. The internet has facilitated that a lot more. I think that, um, I don't think the problem is new. I don't think, I don't think the, the reality is new. It's just, there's, we've made it a lot more possible for people and we've also made it more visible. Mm -hmm. It's not that if you did a poll 30 years ago, just coming up with a bunch of crazy ideas and see how many people, um, believed them. People did, did that. But now we know that, that, that Infowars gets however million, 
you know, views a day. So we know like, wow, a lot of people believe this crazy stuff. Well, that's kind of what I'm poking at because you're right. If you had done a poll 30 years ago, I'm sure 15% of the populace believed that the lizard people yeah. are in a conspiracy <laughs> to take over. It's just that now there's a TPM out there for lizard people believers yeah, that yeah, has a yeah. YouTube channel that yep. has, you know, all, all these things. So like, I, I don't even know what the question is here now. I just, I'm wondering how you think of that because I'm, you know, we're here celebrating what you've achieved here at this right. thing. How do you feel about the fact that there is now a platform? There's a there is an ability to have a TPM for lizard people news. Um, I think that uh, fake news and fake news with what I would call malevolent agendas. Like, here's an example. There's probably, you can go th find people who are really into like Bigfoot, right? There, it, there is a Bigfoot subculture. Mm -hmm. There's subcultures about UFOs. It, you know, uh, pretty sure Bigfoot doesn't exist. Maybe UFOs, but I'm pretty skeptical. But sort of like, okay, you know, doesn't really matter. No one, no one is being hurt mm -hmm. because of people think there's Bigfoot. Obviously, when you're talking about uh, neo-Nazi stuff. It's a very, it's a, it's a very different, or uh, even anti-vax stuff. Yeah, there are a variety of things that are, that create real-world harms, and those are a big bad deal. I don't think there are easy answers for them. Although I think one easy answer is. They should not be given the velocity of platform amplification. I don't really honestly see a lot of uh, free speech issues there. But I would say this. A lot of what we are dealing with is that those of us who are of a certain age remember a world where news was controlled mostly by two different kinds of monopolies. One was the... Um, the the public spectrum you know you, you, there's there's three networks and two independent channels in the city you live in and that's tv they control tv and it's only those five there may be some you know random kind of public access thing but those five things control stuff they monetize by they need to kind of appeal to everybody so they kind of keep you know keeps everybody in kind of a a tight spectrum um a tight sort of ideological spectrum news spectrum and the other thing is newspapers and your wherever you grew up um there was one or two newspapers that had a monopoly over commercial speech in your area um that's why they made a ton of money on classifieds anybody in in commerce probably needed to advertise through them uh that meant that they made a lot of money and they had to ha have sort of mass appeal. They couldn't be tightly identified with one sort of, you know, oddball political movement or something like that. And that had a lot of negative things that a lot of what you're saying, you and a lot of other people were reacting to. Sort of like, I don't want this one homogenized thing where you're not kind of leveling with me because you need to appeal to every, you know, kind of everybody across the spectrum. Um, and, and so there was a lot that was negative about that, but it also meant that a lot of the, there was just no place for a lot of this stuff. And, and I think it's important to realize that 
it's not that we were better people 30 or 40 years ago or 50 years ago. Um, it's not, it, it, it's really that our information was dominated by monopolies and that kept a lot of things just without much of a bullhorn and the internet changed that in some, I'm always one of these people who, you know, I don't buy arguments about technology having certain kind of innate um, tendencies to itself, but the internet did change some basic things. It 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 require it it um it created ease of entry, you know, lack of capital costs, blah 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 blah, uh, and that's different. And I don't have a I don't have a good answer to that. I think it, but I do think it's worth understanding why it's different now than it than it was and it really is about the existence of those monopolies in the past that that uh that don't exist in the way that they they do now although now you have google and facebook and these other things that have become monopolies in 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 different ways and that's kind of what we're wrestling with now finally you um i've kept you from it today but you still you still post almost every day i think your editor's take or blog or mm-hmm. whatever um that's still important to you to to have a a platform for yourself to to give your perspective yeah um it is sometimes more than others uh i think i think sometimes i mean at a certain level that's my job and that's what i do and people expect me to do it so i do it um i do have uh I think when I first started doing this, I had the hunger and compulsion to do it a lot. Um, I, it's a little different for me now. Um, you could give it up, you think? I think I could go on vacation for a month. <laughs> I'm not, I don't think I could, I don't think I could, I don't think I would want to give it up. Um, Sometimes I, I think sometimes I, I find myself wanting to think more and, 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 and write less, but I do still feel like it is this kind of basic way that I interact with the world and I have an audience that I am, I'm, you know, blessed and honored to have and I feel a connection to that audience and a responsibility to that audience and and i just have perspectives that i want to share well as someone that's been reading you for 20 years i'm almost sorry i even put that idea in your head don't (laughs) don't don't give it up i don't i i I see i see no scenario where where um where i would i enjoyed doing it it was but but i but i do think and this is often um you know this is a thing that that uh when as as people age you you um sometimes you have the, the compulsion is a little different when 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 you're when you're a little older um and i've also been doing it for a long time but i have no intention of stopping well thanks for pausing at least to talk to me today josh <laughs> thanks so much for having me i appreciate it if you like what you've heard on this episode please support us by subscribing to the podcast so you can get great news stories and conversations every two weeks. And please buy the book 
that was based on this podcast. How the Internet Happened from Netscape to the iPhone by me, Brian McCullough. Order it now wherever books are sold. How the Internet Happened. And if you weren't aware, I host a daily tech news podcast every weekday that comes out at 5 p.m. In that show, I tell you what happened that day in the world of tech. It's only 15 to 20 minutes long, and it's great if you love tech news. Search your podcast app for Ride Home to find the show. It's called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Thanks. Okay, cool. Well, that is the interview. Um, like I said, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I, I think at least that it's it's the it, it's the it's the clearest one hour kind of history uh, of this site and how it began and why it began and, and and the evolution over time. Let me remind you that uh, the Josh Marshall podcast is sponsored by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. Get twenty percent off your first order at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And remember too. Subscribe to TPM. Please do. Yeah, you absolutely subscribe. Uh, if you're a reader, we'd really appreciate it. You can have a uh, Prime subscription, and you can also have a Prime ad-free subscription, Prime AF as we call it, uh, and that is Prime with absolutely no ads, TPM with no ads at all. So if you're really uh, not into ads, kind of like this ad for membership that I'm doing <laughs> right now, you know, but seriously, it's, you know, uh, the... It, it's, it's faster load time. Faster load time. Beyond just it's less load. cluttered. Exactly, and the reality is, you know, we uh, we need to bring in revenue to run the whole operation, and and it's the nature of uh, the internet and internet advertising these days that sites, you know, they have ads all over the place, and it, yeah. and it's not. Um, it's not the site's fault. It's it's uh, the nature of the ad business. It's really essential to bring in revenue. And with ad free, we can show you a site that has totally no ads at all, ever, never, all that kind of stuff. It's totally awesome. And and once you try it, you'll you'll kind of realize, like, yeah. wow, I'm never going back. Absolutely. And I'm gonna I'm gonna be a, a Prime AF subscriber forever. Uh, we have a special deal that you can that you can uh, subscribe with as a listener to the Josh Marshall podcast. That's Talking Points Mem com slash deal and you can get uh, what is it 30% off what 20% off 20% off forget 20, 30% <laughs> off that's not at all possible 20% off but it's a discount and, and you can also uh, sign up for ad free anyway do it it's really great and uh, thank you so much hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll talk to you soon see you then later later